call to worship this morning is Psalm 27. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At His tabernacle will I sacrifice with a shout of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, Seek His face. Your face, Lord, I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, or false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading comes from two texts today in the Old Testament. And uh, when we look at these two texts, I think you'll see that you'll see both sides of Old Covenant history very clearly. And the reason I chose both of these texts is because both of them have connections to the garden or imagery of the garden in their communication. So, the first text, and we will be continuing with the garden theme today in the sermon, and what I'll be focusing in on today is the law and the garden, and we'll complement this with the next presentation, next sermon, which will be the prophets and the garden. But here we have two texts, Numbers chapter 24, beginning in verse 2. Numbers chapter 24 beginning in verse 2, reading through verse 9, and then we'll go to Hosea chapter 6 after that. Numbers 24, beginning in verse 2. When Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the Spirit of God came upon him and he uttered this oracle, the oracle of Balaam son of Beor, the oracle of one whose eyes see clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. How beautiful are your tents, O Jacob, your dwelling places, O Israel. Like valleys they spread out, like gardens beside a river, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. Water will flow from their buckets, their seed will have abundant water. Their king will be greater than Agag, their kingdom will be exalted. God brought them out of Egypt, they have the strength of a wild ox. They devour hostile nations and break their bones in pieces. With their arrows, they pierce them. Like a lion, they crouch and lie down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse them? May those who bless you be blessed and those who curse you be cursed. So there's a very positive aspect of the history of Israel. Now let's go to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea, the minor prophet, chapter 6, verse 1 through 11. The other side of covenant history. 
Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but He will heal us. He has injured us, but He will bind up our wounds. After two days, He will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us, that we may live in His presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge Him as surely as the sun rises, He will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flash like lightning upon you, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. They were unfaithful to me there. Gilead is a city of wicked men, stained with footprints of blood. As marauders lie in ambush for a man, so do bands of priests. They murder on the road to Shechem, committing shameful crimes. I have seen a horrible thing in the house of Israel. There Ephraim is given to prostitution, and Israel is defiled. Also for you, Judah, a harvest is appointed. And the Lord bless the reading of his word. Bo, can you lead us in prayer? The beauty of the Bible is the unity of its message. And modern Christians in our culture don't always see the unity of the Bible, but that doesn't change the fact that the Bible is one story from beginning to end. Why do Christians not see the profound unity of our scriptures? Why do they miss this unity and this this connection from the beginning of the Bible to the end? Well, I believe a very large reason is rooted in the fact that we live in a self-centered culture. We modern Americans are habituated from birth to seek our own self-interest and look for our own gratification. We want life in general to revolve around us. And this is manifest, made manifest in, the, in our cultural terminology what we, called a few decade, what we called a few decades ago the me generation. That's really what it was sort of like the me generation was all about me. Everything in this world was about me. And every generation since then has been another me generation, even more so than the one before since then. And what you have is a culture that has this issue of immaturity where everything in the world revolves around us and about our interests. And Christians who grew up in this culture come to the Bible with this particular perspective. And it's actually a form of immaturity. There's actually a a great songwriter who wrote a song oh, 20-something years ago, and there's a line in the song which shows kind of the, the, the connection between immaturity and self-centeredness. Um, this line in the song goes, When I was three, I thought the world revolved around me. I was wrong, so I sing along. So there's sort of this interesting issue here about self-centeredness and immaturity, and that's really what we have in our culture. And as Christians come to the Bible, they come with this idea of self-centeredness, so they start looking for the Bible in what they're going to get out of it, what is written to them directly. I think that's why you have people reading the New Testament and avoiding the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament, that's not for me. That's something that was back then. I want to read the New Testament. Self-centeredness and immaturity kind of plays out in that. I also think that's why you have people reading the Bible in terms of you know, a strictly psychological approach for self-help or, or, or riches or even you know, dispensationalism with its end-of-the-world stuff, well, that's all about me. I'm reading about these things in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation. Everything else in the world is about me, so this must be about me and what I experience as well. You know, politics that we're seeing in our world, 
national politics and stuff. Well, the Bible has to be talking about that because that's, that's what I know. All of these things are related to the immaturity and self-fairness of our world. And what happens is the Bible ends up getting broken up and so you don't really have these connections that, that Christians meditate on and learn. And really the ultimate result of that is it's a tragedy because what happens is when you don't see the unity of the Scriptures, you don't really understand the Scriptures for what they are. And so what happens is, as the end result of all this stuff, is that we're not applying the whole story of the Bible to life. We're applying our own confusion about the story of the Bible to life. And that's really where we are today. And it's a sure recipe for disaster. Modern, immature Christians apply their confusion about the Bible to life and that explains the great mess that we are in today. So, today I want to continue with this, this theme of continuity in the Scriptures with the garden theme of the Bible, and I'll focus in on the law and the garden. And I think if you remember back on the things that we covered in the book of Genesis, I think you'll see how amazing, really, this whole issue is of the garden in the law itself and in the time of Moses. So try to remember the stories that we covered earlier in Genesis because I think you'll see how they all come up. But really what I'm trying to communicate is that the same gospel that we know of as Jesus Christ's gospel is the same gospel from the very beginning. Ultimately, that's what it all boils down to. Enoch preached the gospel in his day. Noah preached the gospel in his day. Moses preached the gospel in his day. It's all the same gospel. And I think you'll see how that works as we see these connections. So... Now, when I mention the law, what name comes to mind? It should be Moses is the one who brings the law. Moses is the symbol of the law throughout the rest of our Bible. So, where I want to start today is looking at Moses, some things in Moses' life that connect back to Genesis and even the Garden of Eden. So, let's go to Exodus chapter 1. And I want to read Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 6 and 7. And what we're going to see here... Um, this really caught me by surprise when I started looking at Exodus and the history of Moses in terms of the stories we just covered in Genesis because it was so profound. But let's start with Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, and let's see if you can pick up some themes coming from the garden originally and then in Genesis as well. Verse 6 of Exodus chapter 1. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Does that look familiar to you? It actually looks different in our English translations because the word land is used here in verse, in verse 7. They filled the land. And back in Genesis 1.27, for example, when God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and fill the earth, the English comes across differently. But the Hebrew is identical. If you remember Noah, after the flood, Noah was told to be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the arete, the land. Well, actually, this is a fulfillment of the command to Adam and Eve, and this is a fulfillment of the command to Noah and his sons. And I think, I think people, I think when you read this in Hebrew, it actually is meant to, to, to make that connection back to the garden, back to, to Noah after the flood. And I, I will make an extended comment about this because it's been shown very well that it wasn't just having babies through which this took place. Um, the number of people that came out of the Exodus 
were not only biologically related to Joseph and his family. That was a big part of it. We, we read about the, the Hebrew midwives and the, the reproduction taking place in Exodus. But there were other nations and other people that actually accepted the Hebrew faith and were grafted into the Hebrew faith here in Exodus so that they go out of Egypt as a mixed multitude. And so this fulfillment of the command here is what I want to communicate to you is more than just having babies. And I believe that the same is true with Adam and I believe the same is true with Noah. You can see that in the Tower of Babel. I think that the, the Tower of Babel was actually a failure of the mission of Noah and his family to impact the nations around him for the gospel. And instead what happened was those pagan religions were being brought into the covenant people and they started building a tower, a ziggurat, just like the nations around them. So when, I, when we see this here, this, this fulfilling of this promise, think gospel mandate. Think Great Commission, really. Because that's what God told Adam. That's what God told Noah. Be fruitful and fill the land, the arrest. And here we have a fulfillment of that at the very beginning of Exodus. Also, pick up the story in verse 8. Then a new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Do you see an echo there of some story back in Genesis? The key here is bricks and let us build Babel. I think that there is a connection to the story of Babel right here. And notice what Pharaoh says. He says, come... This is after the, the, the new king who did not know about Joseph. This is really an apostate king. Forgot his heritage. Forgot his connection to God through the covenant people. Apostate king. And he says, Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. Well, that's very similar language to back in the Tower of Babel where they said, Come, let us build a tower, a city and a tower that reaches to the sky. And here you have a city, a storage city. Pharaoh is building his own salvation here just like the story of Babel. So when we enter the book of Exodus, we get this story right off the bat with this echo back in Babel and the Hebrews would have understood that just as Babel was going to be unsuccessful and was unsuccessful because God rode down, came down in Babel and judged Babel, so God is going to come down and judge Pharaoh and his plan is going to be unsuccessful too. I think that, the, I think that is really why those connections are there. To have faith in God who had done all these things in their past. And that's one, another reason why I think that the book of Genesis was already written in current, current use among the Hebrews by the time we get to Exodus. They understood all these stories and these stories are playing and dancing in the beginning of Exodus. So we have Babel being presented right here. How about some more connections between Genesis and Moses? Turn to Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? Does that story look familiar from back in Genesis? And we, when I was, those of you who were here for the sermon series through Exodus probably remember a lot of these connections 
you know, there's two comings of Moses here. His first coming, he kills the Egyptian who's persecuting God's people. That's typological of Christ. The first coming, his brothers reject him. That's typological of Christ. Moses disappears from the community of God's people for 40 years, and then he returns to complete the salvation of God. But in verse 13, I mean, we've seen all that in the, in the particular stuff in Exodus, looking forward to Christ. But this is also looking backwards. Because here you have a Hebrew striking one another and Moses shows up and says, why are you doing that? That's the story of Cain and Abel, brought again in the life of Moses. And what Moses is really doing here is he's trying to reconcile brothers just as Cain murdered Abel, so Moses is trying to stop that animosity. And so you have Moses here being presented as like an anti-Cain. He's like not Cain. As Cain was evil, Moses is righteous. So there's another echo right there from Genesis. What about what happened when Moses left? Verse 14, The man said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? So they're accusing Moses of being like Cain, essentially. Then Moses was afraid and thought, What I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. You see what Moses is, is doing? Keep reading. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. You see the connection to Genesis? Just like the sons of God in Genesis 6 who went out and married the daughters of men thereby corrupting the line, the covenant line of God. Moses goes out and he marries a daughter of a true priest. Moses, the son of God, marries Zipporah, a daughter of God in contrast to what happened to corrupt the covenant line back in Genesis 6. Of course, that brought around the, the, the flood judgment on that covenant world and God started again with Noah and his family. And that, of course, is another real obvious connection back to Genesis and the life of Moses. Exodus chapter 2, verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. So Moses is floating down the river. You see the connection back, of course, to the flood. Tar and pitch and everything. The same, same tar and pitch that Noah used to coat the ark. There's all kinds of stuff here in the life of Moses that is a reflection and a recapitulation or a, you know, an echo of the book of Genesis in the life of Moses right at the beginning. So I think that it's all ordered this way for a reason. I think that they understood the book of Genesis so well, Moses in particular, that he, he ordered this accounting this way to make those connections very subtly. And we see also that there's continuity here from the book of Genesis. Check out Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and 25. During the long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of the, their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
That's a link straight back to the stories in Genesis. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Throughout history, what you'll see in covenant history is that God is always concerned about his people. And I think that begins in Genesis in the garden when he was concerned about Adam because he knew that it was not good for man, Adam, to be alone. So we have very similar principles going on in this. But there are more images here that relate to the Garden of Eden in an indirect and subtle way. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. Continue on in the story of Exodus. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the promised land. Abraham was given this promise first. And so God is going to fulfill the promises to Abraham. But there's a connection here to the Garden of Eden, a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk and honey is a connection back to Eden. Why? Because honey is produced by bees which have hives in trees and milk is a more nourishing form of water. And so now you have this and honey is actually sweeter than the fruit off a tree and milk is actually better than water. So you have this land that's flowing with milk and honey just like Eden had flowing rivers which watered the garden with trees. So when you see the land flowing with milk and honey, there is a there is a reason you should think Eden in that imagery, in that in that symbolism. So there's a connection right there. In fact, the Bible actually tells us that the land of Canaan was like Eden. Joel 2, speaking of Zion under judgment, Joel the prophet makes it explicit. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. This is talking about God's judgment on Zion. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. And so, Exodus is communicating that when Israel is taken out of Egypt, they're going to go back to Eden in a very real sense. And that's why all these connections are, are, are made here. And I think it's interesting because Christians who think that, that the Garden of Eden was something totally different than anything we can experience today are generally the ones that demand a literal interpretation of the Bible, right? And yet they don't take Joel literally when he says that the land, Israel, was like the Garden of Eden. I mean, so there's real problems here with thinking in terms of biological creational things. I think the, the creational things are being used for something to communicate something else. And Joel, too, literally says that the promised land was like the Garden of Eden. There are more connections back to God's garden for example, in Exodus 28. And now we're going to get into the law side of things. Exodus chapter 28, verse 9. Speaking of the priestly garments that they were to make for the high priest. Take two, uh, Exodus 28, verse 9. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in order of their birth. Six names on one stone and remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the son of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree settings and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names of, on his shoulders as a memorial before the Lord. What are they remembering? 
Well, the key is the onyx stone. Onyx stone is mentioned in Genesis 2 in the garden. And Israel's names are being put, in, put on that jewel as a memorial of the Garden of Eden and where they were in covenant with God. Onyx stone comes, the only other mention there is from Genesis chapter 2. Um, you get another one like this too in the law. Actually, this keeps going too because the stones, the precious stones in the garden, all of those listed, they actually come up in the New Testament. Paul talks about if any man builds on the foundation, speaking of Christ, using gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Paul's referencing the garden and the stones. He's referencing the same kind of theme. And then, of course, the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 is a dazzling city. And so what we're supposed to see in the law, and people get all confused about the New Jerusalem having you know, gates of pearl and, and foundations of sapphire and things like that, and they're thinking in terms of literal. But we're supposed to learn from the law that the children of Israel, God's people, are stones. That's why the names are engraved on the stones. And so when all these stones are being used here in the law from the garden, Paul's talking about the church being built up with stones, precious stones and metals. And then you get to Revelation 21, we're talking about the church. A dazzling, beautiful city. Valuable in God's sight. Beautiful in God's sight. That's what, the way that's communicated. Or how about another connection between the garden in the wilderness? Numbers chapter 11, verse 7. This one actually is very significant in its own way. Numbers chapter 11, verse 7. The manna was like coriander seed and looked like resin. Now, some of your translations might say bedellium, right? There's only one other place where that word in Hebrew shows up. It's back in the garden. And so when Moses is sitting here explaining this manna, what's he thinking about? It looks like bedellium, resin. It looks like something in the garden. And so here you have Moses, even while they're in the wilderness, eating the manna, he's thinking about the garden. Even in the wilderness, he's thinking about the garden. And there is a connection between the manna and the garden too, right? Because manna is food. And in the story of the wilderness, they had all they could eat. Take all the manna you can eat. That's the condition of Adam and Eve in the garden when they were surrounded by food. They were surrounded by trees. They could eat anything that they wanted. So all of these things in the law and the stories of Exodus have distinct similarities back to the garden, back to Genesis, back to the beginning stories. And of course we see it come up again in Revelation 2.14. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone. So we're also told that manna is white. Everything begins in the garden. There are a lot more connections between Israel and the promised land with the law and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with God's word. Uh, one of the details in the law is that the golden lampstand in the temple is actually designed to be a tree. That's a connection back to the Garden of Eden. And so what you have in the temple with a golden lampstand with buds and, and blossoms and things like that holding the candles is that the tree is giving light. That's the tree of life. Root, that's rooted in tree of life imagery in the story of the garden. And of course we see how that life and light work in the New Testament with Jesus Christ the true tree of life. Also, another interesting was that the high priest wore a, a piece of solid gold on his forehead in front of his turban. The high priest. What connection would that have back to the Garden of Eden? Remember the curse on Adam and Eve was that they would, on Adam, that would be, he would work by the sweat of his brow all the days of his life. Well, having gold there, gold doesn't sweat. And so the high priest would have like this very precious 
new forehead in which the curse is removed straight out of, the, out of Genesis chapter 3. Another aspect of the law. And it was inscribed on that forehead piece, holy to the Lord. So the curse actually is, is really symbolically removed for the high priest who lives in God's presence. Even the clothes the high priest wore were based on themes and things that we see back in the garden. We've covered this a little bit before. Ezekiel 44 talks about this in detail. I'll read it briefly here. Ezekiel chapter 44, verses 17 and 18. Speaking of the high priest, when they enter the gates of the inner court, they are to wear linen clothes. They must not wear any woolen garments while ministering at the gates of the inner courts or outside the temple. They are to wear linen turbans on their heads and linen undergarments around their waist. They must not wear anything that makes them perspire. Again, that's coming straight out of Genesis 3 because for the high priest, he's in God's presence. You can't go in God's presence unless the curse has been removed. You can't go into God's presence as a sinner. And so for the high priest who enters into God's presence, all of the stuff is designed to where it doesn't make him sweat as a symbol. So I say all that to say this. The ultimate connection between Adam and Eve in the garden and Israel in the land was never defined by physical circumstances or where geographically they lived. It was never defined that way. We see, we see garden imagery in the wilderness. We see garden imagery in Exodus in Egypt. We see garden imagery in the Canaan land. We actually, I don't have time to press this, but we see garden imagery in Babylon in the captivity as well. It was never defined about where geographically they lived or the way the physical creation works. Remember back in Genesis 13, I mentioned that the reference to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 13, the whole plain of Jordan was well watered like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. Well, Abraham was in the plain of Jordan and Abraham was in Egypt at various parts of his life. And it may even prefigure the fact that Israel was going to be in Egypt like the Garden of the Lord. Goshen, the best land of Egypt. So Israel was in the garden in Egypt. Israel was in the garden in the wilderness as symbolized by the manna and the fact that they had the law of Moses. Everything in the law of Moses is based off the garden. And Israel was in the garden in Canaan as symbolized by the milk and the honey. The continual message of the law was Edenic. And the point of all that imagery was covenantal. God dwelled with his people no matter where they were, no matter what conditions they found themselves in. Joseph understood that in his life. Eden was all about covenant union and communion with God. And I like the way David Chilton puts this because he brought it all down into one brief, understandable statement. The way he said it was this way. What was most important about the garden, indeed that which made it a garden at all, was God's presence with his people. So understood in those terms what this law is all about it really is all about the garden of the Lord in pictures, shadows, and types. Now think about the connection between and the story of the garden that we looked at with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden with God's word and Israel in the land, Eden, with the law, God's word. Think of those things as parallel things in covenant history. And think of these, these parallels. Where was Adam created first? Adam was created in the wilderness. And then he was taken and put in the garden that God planted, right? That's true of Israel too. Israel was taken into the wilderness, made a nation at Sinai, finally, as an independent nation, and then planted in the land. Adam was made a living soul, and by what I understand that is covenant life, 
by the breath of God, and Israel was made a living nation by the breath of God, the voice which gave the law at Sinai. Adam was given grace first in the many gifts that God gave him, and then after Adam entered into covenant life with God, he was told a commandment. And we see the same thing with Israel. Israel was saved first from the bondage of Egypt and then given the law to obey. I mean, how did the, how did the Ten Commandments open? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Grace first, like Adam, creation, new creation, then obedience. The key here is to notice that God did not give the law to Israel while in Egypt and tell Israel, if you keep the law, I will deliver you. That's not how the story works. And I think that's why Paul objected to the Judaizers so strongly is because they, were, they had that view of the law. You keep the law and then you get life. When, no, 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 the history of Israel is, no, no, God saves you first and then he gives you the law. Moses can't take you to the promised land. That's, that's Paul's point in Galatians. Life does not come by obedience to the law. Life comes by faith. Joshua leads you to the promised land and once God saves you, he gives you a law to obey as a response, not, in, not as a, a way to gain life. The law presumes life is already given by grace, just like Adam in the garden. Adam was already created. He was already given grace. He was already blessed with gifts and then he was given a commandment. You see the same thing with Israel coming out of the Exodus. One more big connection. Adam was told he would die if he disobeyed God's command. And we see in the story that when they did disobey, they were kicked out of the garden. Israel was placed in the garden, given a law, and told they would be kicked out of the land if they broke covenant with God. And we see that happening in Israel's history. When they broke the covenant... They were kicked out of the land. And this similarity shows again that the death in the garden is synonymous with separation from God, being cut off, being removed from God's presence. They were removed from the presence and access to the tree of life. Now, if we look at all these things as as gospel themes, we'll see that they all teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that, that sounds really weird to say that the law is the gospel. In our day... The way Christians think about the law, that's a big no-no. And there are reasons for that. Misunderstandings of Paul, false ways of thinking about things in the Bible, it happens. But yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ is in the garden. Yes, the gospel of Jesus Christ is in the law of Moses. Yes, these things are all about Jesus Christ. We just don't have it because we are blinded by a few hundred years of bad tradition which says law is opposed to gospel dispensationalism, for example. We're blinded by a few hundred years of tradition which says that the Garden of Eden is a physical place we get to at the end of history. That will cause people to miss this Edenic theme and its place in redemption. If you think about Eden as a physical place, only a physical place that we're going to get to at the end of history, futurism, you're not going to see the unity of the Bible. You're not going to see these themes coming out. It's not about a physical place. It's about covenant. It's about presence. Union and communion with God, it's about gospel. And to show you that, turn to John 15. Because I think it's right here in John 15. Let's see if Jesus taught along these same themes that we saw in Genesis. And let's see if if Jesus is talking along the same themes as we saw in Exodus in the life of Moses and the law. John chapter 15. I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Two questions. Where do, where do vines, grapevines, grow? They grow in gardens. Second question, where is God first presented as a gardener? Genesis 2. 
God plants the trees. God makes them grow. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Creation first. Life first. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Tree of life for eternal life. If you're separated from the tree of life, you can do nothing. You're dead. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, breaks covenant. He is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's what happened to Sodom. That's what happened to Israel in 70 A.D. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. This is a new law because Hebrews 7 tells us that with a new priest, when you have a change of priesthood, you have a change of law. This is a new law from a new priest. But it's not new at the same time because 1 John has the same kind of... It's, it's there. It's there. It's just new in fullness. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. We're back to one command. Just like God's command to Adam. One command. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. God's people grew up in the new covenant. No longer servants, no longer children in the household, no longer the church in short pants. Slang. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, singular, love each other. And we see, like I said, very same thing going on in First John where he talks about one command I give to you. This is a new command. It's not a new command. It's a command you've had from the beginning. It's all Edenic. Everything in the New Testament is being done in terms of the Law and the Prophets and everything in the Law and the Prophets is being done in terms of Eden. It's this theme that runs all the way through. All the Bible is about grace, about faith and obedience. May, may we glory in it and live faithfully in God's covenant land forevermore. Amen. Our Father, we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. We thank you and praise you and worship you for you are the only true God, the only giver of life, and the only protector and guide and friend. We pray for your blessing now as we strive to understand you better and as we strive to apply our understanding to the daily life that we live in each, each of us in our own places in your kingdom. May you give us wisdom and strength. May you guide us and protect us Keep us from evil. In the Lord Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.